0: לפני שמתחילים, הודעה קצרה. אם אתם אוהבים את הפודקאסט הזה, אתם כנראה אנשים ממש מיוחדים ומרתקים. אז אם לכם לפגוש עוד אנשים כמותכם, וגם אותי, וגם את רלי, אנחנו עושים מפגש עוקבים שלישי. ביום חמישי, בתאריך התשיעי למאי 24, בין השעות 7.30 ל-11.30, אנחנו הולכים לקיים מפגש עוקבים שלישי בבית שלי בנופים בשמרון. מה בתוכנית? מינגלין וכיבודים עוד עוקבים מרתקים, כמוכם, שלי, דיון לגבי הערוץ, ציור בסטודיו, ובסוף קומזיץ ופיטות על הסאג' הרשמה מראש חובה, וניתן לעשות זה בקישור שבתיאור הערוץ, או לחפש את הלינק ביוטיוב. מאוד מאוד לראות אתכם. ועכשיו, לשיחה. <computer> Hi, and welcome to my channel, The World of Roy where I host interesting and fascinating people from all around the world. And today, I'm privileged and honored to have Professor Stephen Icks on the show. Now, Professor Hicks is one of the most famous scholars to explain and attack postmodernism philosophy. Let me quote John Anderson, with whom you had a great conversation two months ago. Stephen Hicks is a philosopher who is well known for his expertise in demystifying postmodernist ideology. His insight into postmodernism and politically correctness have extra significance today as we see university progressive activism spilling out into the streets. So I couldn't phrase it better than John Anderson. By uh, beside, uh, beside, what I just uh, told you is, uh, he teaches at Rockford Un- University, where he also directs the Center of Ethics and Entren- Entrepreneurship. He is the author of books like *Expanding Postmodernism* and *Unveiled Postmodernism* in the Hebrew version, and *Nietzsche and the Nazis*, and another book, which is, I don't know. There is one more. Yes.
1: Well, yeah, there's a few other ones. But yeah, <laughs> okay. Those are the two, uh, the two ones most relevant to our topic today. Thanks for the gracious, gracious introduction.
0: <laughs> okay, so this is the Israeli-style introduction. Now, today we said that we are going to restrict our conversation to free speech in academia and science. Okay. And before we started uh, the recording, I told you that I come from the computer science and I, I, I uh, deals with artificial intelligence for robotics. And this is a very interesting topic. Should we uh, enforce free speech on robotics, on robots as well? But uh, let me just start with the, the first question. Now, from my experience... We need in those kinds of conversations, you need to get the definitions straight. So let's start with free speech. We know that American students are against hate speech. And we know as a joke that hate speech is any opinions that they don't agree with. Now, beyond this joke, would you say that hate speech actually exists? And if so, what is it?
1: Okay. Well yes, Uh, there is such a thing as hate speech and uh, my view is there should be no restrictions at all on speech as a general principle and that would include hate speech. Uh, Hate is an emotion, it's a a human emotion, it's a strong revulsion against something that you perceive to be a, a major threat to your values and that can be a perfectly legitimate emotion for people to experience. Of course, uh, like any other emotion, people can have incorrect beliefs or, or, or uh, false beliefs or immoral beliefs that lead them to feel hate inappropriately. Uh, so the first question is, you know, is the expression of hate a, a legitimate thing or not? And that's going to in part turn on do you think the underlying beliefs that give rise to the hate are legitimate or, or not? So what I would say is that human beings should be free to think whatever they judge is important. They should be able to express in cognitive form, verbally, by means of text, what their ideas are. And a lot of our communication is through emotional signaling and we should be allowed freely to express whatever we are, we are feeling. So uh, I think that is most importantly because as human beings, we are an intelligent species potentially, and that is the fundamental for our understanding the way the world works. So we formulate our beliefs and we know how to act in the world, including how we interact with other human beings. If you stifle human thinking, then you are stifling the human ability to survive and flourish, including survival, social and, uh, and flourishing. Now, all of that said, of course, there are contexts within which we say, well, should I express this thought now or should I keep it to myself? How should I express this thought? And in many cases, context uh, will specify principles of civility and, 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 uh, and ranges of limits of what you can express or so, but all of those need to be very tightly defined. And I also want to say that all of those restrictions should be arising through conversation and tailored to the context, and that all of the participants will agree to those conversational restrictions. So for example, I'm a philosophy professor, so I'm meeting several times every week with undergraduate students. And the only way philosophy can work is if we take on these huge issues about which there's great disagreement, and they really push people's value buttons very fundamentally. And you've got young people who need to explore all of these ideas and try ideas out and debate with each other and learn how to debate on that. So if I go into a class like that and I make it very clear up front that, hey, I'm the professor and there are certain ideas that you cannot express or you can never get angry and you can never respond in a certain way, that is going to short circuit the process. So I can't in any authoritarian way put limitations on the process. What I can say as a liberal in the classical sense professor is this is what we're doing in philosophy. You are human beings. You need to work all of these things out, but we are going to do that socially. And the way that's going to work is if we all recognize that if we are threatening each other physically, verbally, beyond certain ways, attacking people in certain ways, this isn't really going to work. And to the extent students then grasp that that's appropriately, they will voluntarily agree to restrict themselves. Now, of course, they're young people, they're going to make mistakes, but they should be self-monitoring and self-regulating. So I'm against any sort of hate speech restrictions.
0: But when you say we need to do it socially, the one thing that came to mind is like a, a, a safe space and we yeah. don't want safe space in one of your uh, con- conversations that i saw on the internet you said let's assume that there is a person on academia said that i can't i'm so sensitive that i can't even hear certain kinds of opinions so yeah. we need to go we need to send him to see a psychologist so yeah. what what is the borderline between okay i got what you say between being uh, able to To say or express your opinion and being rude you don't need to be rude you need to be polite but where but where lies the line between something that I cannot say
1: no exactly right and there is no way ahead of time to draw where that line is because every individual is different every uh, relationship is different uh, and so it's a matter of ongoing judgment call about what's appropriate so you know, and then, as you mentioned, uh, there are cultural differences as well, and we need to make uh, recognize that there are cultural differences and and take those into account. You know, it's it's a bit like anything in life. We can say, okay, you know, I'm going to have a relationship with some some woman I'm a, I'm attracted to. Uh, you know, where do I draw the line between saying yes, I'm attracted enough to ask her out on a date, or I've been dating her. Where do I draw the line and say I'm going to not date her anymore? I'm going to break up with it. There is no mechanical ahead of time line that you can draw on these things. It's got to emerge by the individuals involved in, uh, in judgment form. So, uh, yes, we all recognize what counts as being rude, but that again shifts from context to context. Uh, you know, it's one thing if, uh, I'm, I not I'm sending a text and I just say, you know, see you in five minutes gone. Right. And that's, that's the entire talk of a minute, but you know, uh, you know, you and I are con- conversing right here, if I were to say is, you know, see you in five minutes and then just turn my back on you, that would be inappropriate. That would be a little bit rude Good. and also tone of voice matters, right? And so forth. Uh, it also, uh, you know, it, it would matter if I'm showing up for a job interview and the person says to me, okay, I'm, you know, I'm ready to interview now, but I'm, you know, doing something on my phone and I just say, see you in five minutes. Well, that would be rude in that particular context. So there's no way to take even a simple formulation of words, see you in five minutes, and specify all of the contexts and situations within which you can say that or not say that, and in what tone of voice and to whom. It's not possible. That's why on most things in life, individual judgment matters.
0: In other words, you can distinguish how from what And this is a very big problem because if I would say there are genetic IQ differences between white and blacks in the US, it's very hard to phrase it in, no matter how how much you try in a sensitive way. So it's very, very, very very hard. Now, let me,
1: yes. No, no, absolutely. Uh, And again, that's that's part of the sensitivity, right? training issue that you have to go on, right? I mean, what do you say to people who are at a funeral, right? Well, you have to be enormously sensitive to that person's emotional context, right? Or someone who's just gone through a divorce or has lost a child or has lost a job or something like that. So uh, part of being a decent person in a social context is knowing your own situation and what you want to express, but also being sensitive to the other people's context as well. So, yeah, issues of uh, racism, we know those are button pushing. And so we have to be, I think, yeah, extraordinarily succe- uh, sensitive there. But at the same time, we should not say there are issues that we can't talk about, even things that we think are false, offensive, that have a hidden political agenda, that we're dealing with someone who's psychologically disturbed. Uh, we can't ahead of time say, no, you just can't express those views. Now, partly because of the general principles that we've just talked about, but also you know, if you just censor something, it doesn't really change the dynamic. Instead, all it does is it drives it underground and, uh, and it makes the problem worse. So if there's a view that you think is, uh, is false about uh, racial differences and so on, let people express that. If it really is false, then we should have the data and the argumentation to be able to show that it's false and then we're in a stronger position.
0: I, I, I must tell you a story. Gary Jones told me this uh, story. Professor Gary Jones, he's a professor of economics and uh, intelligence. And he told me that the number one environmentalist in the terms of IQ differences is uh, James Flynn, uh, is a scholar from New Zealand. And James Flynn uh, tried very, very heavily to get uh, funds in the U.S. to prove that all IQ differences are purely environmental. And he couldn't get the money. Part of hmm. uh, part of the reason, according to Flynn, because scholars in the U.S. afraid that this is not the case. And if they if they give him money to prove the uh, to prove otherwise, it will be on their name that there hmm. are some inherently genetic uh, uh, IQ differences. So it's yeah. very very it it it, it it's very dangerous it's very delicate now let me give you two examples okay one is a flat earth theory and the other is holocaust deniers now what should we do in science because we said i want to talk about free speech in science academia and society what should we do with holocaust denier on facebook's and on Mm -hmm. and and flat earth theory should we should we embrace those theories and say let the let the uh, better theory win or should we say no we are there are some kinds of limits of free speech yeah well i i would
1: say again the general principle no limits right whatsoever right people are going to hear these ideas out there and uh if you are interested in the truth the question is always going to be what puts people in the position to know the truth and it you don't know the truth just because you read something in a book or your parents or your teachers told you and you just believe them on the basis of authority. So something might be true, but for you to know that it's a truth, you have to know the evidence and the arguments and the counter arguments right before it. So I don't want to have a whole generation of students going around just parroting. The earth is a sphere, right? Because that's what they happen to have uh, heard from people uh, w- when they were young. Uh, and, and in fact, this is an issue that I raise sometimes in my class as a simple example that you know, we have all heard that the earth is a sphere But how do you know that the earth actually is a sphere? And in many cases, they've never really thought about it.
0: It's very uh, hard to prove
1: That's right. Well, actually, maybe not uh, You know, you can so we start talking about examples, you know, what happens when the Sun is Setting over the horizon. Is it just that, you know, the fact that the Sun gets smaller and smaller until you can't see it anymore or is it the case that you are seeing the whole sun, then you're seeing the top three quarters of it, then half and so forth, which indicates curvature. Or if you're doing it at the sea. Or what do you see if you study eclipses and what do you think about satellite photos and lunar shots, right, and so forth. So that's a, then to point them in the direction of saying there is observational evidence that's available to them. And if they're interested, they can go out and look at the observational evidence and then verify it for themselves. So you're training the rational, and in this case, uh, the more systematic they become, the scientific method in them. And at the same time, you know, it, to the extent that flat earth is a, is a, 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 a belief that's out there, but well, what are the arguments uh, the flat earthers make? Let's look at them. And uh, part of the training of a, a rational mind is being able to distinguish Pseudoscientific claims from special pleading kinds of c- claims and getting students to recognize when people are taking evidence and just reinterpreting it or ignoring the evidence or engaging in ad hominem attacks or various kinds of conspiracy theories. So all of those are useful things to train students to be able to do so I would say you know flat earth is a beautiful working example that every student should be exposed to. Now then we scale up to something like Holocaust right uh, denial. Holocaust denials, yes right and then we know that uh, you know because of the history of it you know it's right up there with uh, racism and sexism and how we think about slavery and uh, you know, child mutilation of girls right and so forth uh, uh, you know and the abortion issue and so but I would say right once again uh, part of intellectual training for young people is you need to have the intellectual toughness the intellectual skills, the emotional skills, and the emotional toughness to be able to deal with the most difficult human uh, issues that human beings face. So we're not going to shy away from arguments about racism, sexism, approaches to poverty, dictatorialism, the Holocaust, slavery, and so on. We're going to take them on. If there are people who want to, uh, to minimize the scale of the, uh, of the Holocaust, or excuse the perpetrators? Though, well, what are the what are those arguments? We need to know what they are so we can counter them.
0: In other words, what you're saying is basically the John Stuart Mill uh, approach that any truth that needs that needs authority to remain truth is much less convincing that and that other truth. By the way, in 2016 there was a conference at Harvard University uh, titled uh, "Is." the PC movement helped Trump to get elected. And Steven Pinker, one of the uh, speakers there said, of course, yes, because this is exactly what what you just told me. Mm -hmm. If if you are not allowed in certain kinds of truths in academia, like uh, crime rates are massively different among races and intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are not uh, exposed to those kinds of truth you only get and you only get them from the alt right so you you will flip and mm-hmm. and as part as our, as as part as as our profession in academia is to train the student to train the student with argument and counter argument but yeah. now we don't do it because of yeah. we don't have free speech so in my profession in my discipline in the sciences Everything is fine because we seek truth. But in the humanities, in your discipline, this is very this is a major problem. No. Yes, it's a major problem. No,
1: absolutely. So, if you take you know uh, you know the most obnoxious political views that, that you think are out there from your perspective, uh, as a matter of your own self-interest and your own self-preservation, you want those views to be out there publicly so that you know what they are, who's articulating them, and then you're in a position to to combat them. What you don't want is for those obnoxious political views to be driven underground, where you don't know who's actually articulating, how organized they are, how angry they are, what they're planning, in which case you know uh, if it's the kind of view that's attractive uh, at some atavistic level to people. At some point it's going to burst out in some virulent very ugly and perhaps physicalistic form and they're you're not going to be prepared to deal with it
0: okay now which leads me to the next subject which basically is the same there is a strong relation between politically correctness and free speech because pc by its definition restricts free speech now there are two main definitions of uh, politically correct or, or pc one is like the jordan peterson approach with certain truth shouldn't be voiced because they might insult someone. I'm, I'm not saying that Jordan Peterson hold this approach, but I, this is a very, uh, a very common interpretation of PC. Would you agree?
1: The, the view is that we will restrict speech uh, with respect to certain views.
0: Because we might uh, insult so someone.
1: That's right. So it's not so much the speaker that is the issue, it's the person to whom the, you're speaking and their needs, sensitivity, context kind of trumps everything in that particular case. Yeah, that's one, one application. Sure. Uh, now I would say that's a that's a that's a detail. Uh, I,
0: but but uh, but but first, Stephen, I, I I I would like to say, or I would like to give a different uh, a different interpretation, which is a Marcuse Herbert Marcuse interpretation. So it's over there. Uh, Marcuse had to find to defy the opposition. He found it in what he termed repressive tolerance, later known as politically correctness. In '65, Marcuse wrote an essay that the name in which he argued that tolerance was good only if non-dominating ideas were allowed to flourish. And that non-dominating ideas could flourish only if dominating ideas were shut down. So this is another very different interpretation of politically correctness what, yeah. what do you uh, say
1: well it's complementary to the the one that you cited from jordan peterson because uh, the argument is the from Marcuse you have dominating ideas and dominated ideas or strong ideas and weaker ideas right socially speaking so what he is saying is what we need is to have a kind of egalitarian expression of ideas so we talk about redistributing wealth, Marcuse's <laughs> oh, uh, redistributing speech, right? And, and, and the effectiveness of, uh, of ideas in a more egalitarian, egalitarian phase. Now, uh, this comes where the the, the Marcusian double standard fits with what Jordan Peterson is saying. If it's the dominating uh, or a person who's representing the dominating ideas who is speaking, that person will be restricted because the recipient of those ideas is in a weaker position or representing uh, dominated ideas and so we're restricting these persons idea uh, we're we're disempowering them in order to elevate the power of these ones over here so those are a complementary set of principles now Marcuse, though, is uh, speaking a little bit more broadly because uh, you also have the enforcers of the ideas. And in many cases, they are uh, part of the power play themselves. And so ideas that they think they are in a position to shut down, even if they are the dominating ideas or another subsector of dominating ideas out there, as a matter of protecting their own power or augmenting their own power, they will use this repressive tolerance notion to shut down competing powerful ideas, but it's not about the recipient of those ideas. In that case, it's about their own power relationships.
0: So, in in your book, when you try to explain postmodernism, you start with Kant and then you go to Nietzsche, but but uh, but and those are the main the dominant figures. From uh, and then Foucault, etc. But when Breibart, in his book Righteous Indignation He puts a lot of emphasis on the role that Marcuse Marcuse had in enforcing this uh, hate speech or politically correctness movement in the U.S. So would you consider Marcuse to be a a dominant first or even the most dominant factor in in the PC movement that we now have in the U.S.? Well,
1: it depends what uh, generation you're talking about. I mean, Kant is late 1700s. Nietzsche is late 1800s. Marcuse is 1960s on into the 1970s and so forth. So yes, at the the, uh, the formulation uh, or the big transition in left-wing circles from the old left to the new left, right? Uh, Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s, when the new left is springing into existence, is a huge and towering figure is quite uh, prescient about dictating some of the strategies that repressive tolerance argument about the long march through the institutions that is to say that rather than you know from the outside waiting for the marxist revolution to come we need to work from inside the system But then inside the system, the most important institutions are going to be the cultural institutions rather than certain other, say, business institutions or even political institutions. So he's important for the 1960s. But uh, I would say, you know, Marcuse is really a disciple of two earlier thinkers. When he was young, he was a gung-ho Marxist in the fairly classical tradition. And so Marxist thinking is deep, very deep in his uh, in his in his psyche, and the other important thinker is uh, is uh, is Heidegger, who is uh, an early twentieth century right thinker. Now Heidegger is uh, is a is a national socialist right or a Nazi, uh, and Karl Marx, of course, is a is a left wing or an international socialist. So at some level, they are opposed to each other. Very different metaphysics, in some cases, different uh, ontologies. But what Marcuse is, uh, is is doing is drawing on these two heavyweight traditions, Marxism and Heideggerianism, and then translating it for the context of the 1960s. So, yeah, Nietzsche is important uh, as well, yeah, partly because uh, if you want to know where Heidegger is coming from, Heidegger in, you know, uh, let's say two-thirds of the important stuff in Heidegger is a reworking of Nietzschean themes. So, you know, you go, uh, to put it in big picture terms, you've got Kant at the end of the 1800s, or sorry, the end of the 1700s, uh, Marx in the middle of the 1800s, Nietzsche at the end of the 1800s, Heidegger in the early part of the 20th century, Marcuse in the middle part of the 20th century. And so- And now who
0: is, who is like the, time the time. most <laughs> dominant figure right now in the PC movement in the US or in Europe? Well- I would say a lot of the,
1: uh, I guess this is a level of tactics, or sorry, the level of strategy and the level of abstraction that you are operating on. So I would say, you know, when you are looking at the activists, it's like the the, the theory that they are drawing upon is going to be some combination, uh, and this would be the nasty physicalist, you know, break windows and threaten people types of activists.
0: So the guys sorry? The Saul guys.
1: Yes, that's right. And so you know, he's, he's coming up with a tactics manual, right? Yes. Uh, but, but I would say that the, the activists of this generation, the, the theory they're operating on is mostly Foucault. The, the strategy that they are operating on is going to be Marcuse, and then the
0: tactics manual is something like Alinsky. And who are the philosophers? who are the philosophers the philosophers now the, the the modern the current era philosopher of pc yeah,
1: yeah i i don't know uh, yeah I, partly because i don't think right now pc is a very philosophical movement i mean it's oh. I mean, when you look at the activists even if you look at the people who have a phd after their name and they're publishing in pope modern journals you know they very superficially throw around the names of Nietzsche and uh, and and Heidegger and and Foucault and 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 so forth, but they don't have a very deep engagement with it. And I think that's because we're now into second or third generation. Uh, you know, once you uh, get to postmodern theory with its very strong skepticism, subjectivism, relativism, and so forth, what that tells you is it's really not worth your while to try to develop your cognitive faculties to figure out what the truth is and do science and argument and counter argument. Your theory is telling you all of that is relatively pointless. So what you're going to do then is breed a whole generation of intellectuals who are not actually deeply committed to the intellectual life. What they are committed to is they have a certain set of beliefs and they want to see those put in practice. So you see less theory and more
0: activist training going on in themselves and, and this is why this this movement of pc and postmodernism is more restricted to the humanities because in the sciences we do have yeah. intellectual effort and we do have truth and we do have absolute truth that we strive for
1: yes well the postmoderns are coming for you scientists so uh, be on your guard you know, you got healthy science does presuppose a uh a kind of philosophy, kind of a naturalistic pro-reason philosophy, and that does have to have a liberal ethos of you can think whatever you want and argue whatever you want. So if that naturalism and, uh, and pro-rationality and pro-liberal philosophy is undercut, it's only going to be a matter of time before science is, is assaulted. And so, at the uh, at the margins of science, you probably already are aware of that going on. But you're right that it is the humanities that uh, most of the corruption has existed in. Now, not uniformly in the humanities, you know, there there are some subsectors of the humanities and social sciences that are much worse. Some that are relatively healthy. So, we do need to do some uh, kind of intellectual sociology and demographics uh, rather than rather than the sweeping claims. But it has precisely been in the humanities where you know, when we're looking at human beings with all of their emotions and ideas and histories and and literature and art and so on, those are the most complicated things to try to to figure out. Uh, that uh, it's most easy for skeptical arguments to have purchase, and so that's where they have had the most uh, destructive
0: power. Okay, which leads me to the next question, because in the last I think 30 years we've seen. A, a, a massive improvement in neuroscience and when when i say massive improvement in neuroscience i say that many questions that so far have been solely to the philosophy or psychology departments are now in the neuroscience department we came we we got those questions into the laboratory for example uh, cognitive differences between men and women okay now when i wrote my intelligent book, so it, 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 it struck on me, there are some topics that you cannot uh, do research about, okay? In a, a 2005, the NSF in the United States, after what Lawrence Summers says about uh, uh, women having less aptitude for science, the, the president of Harvard University, the NSF said yeah, that right. we are not going to fund any research that claim to show cognitive differences between men and women. Now, Richard Heyer, which is a, a, the editor of the journal Intelligence, said, listen, Alzheimer's progress differently with men and women from the back to the front of, 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 of your brain. So if I'm not allowed to, to research this, I won't be able to get into medicines that might suit better for men or women. So this is not about psychology. We are not, uh, uh, we are not doing uh, uh, clinical research, which is extremely important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be one example of uh, you know, bad philosophy initially. Uh, in this case, a certain sort of tabula rasa uh, understanding of human nature that we're just uh, blank slates uh, chunks of plasticine or whatever and that the differences between males and females are merely social and arbitrary so all of that bad philosophy then becomes politicized and then the politicization right affects scientific research and then the scientific research is going to undercut medical differences and then you end up people dying uh, and so we when people start you know making the claims that in my discipline, philosophy is just irrelevant to practical life. It's all this abstract head in the cloud stuff. I think that's a very good example of the long road. And it is a long road from high philosophical abstraction, but getting those uh, positions right, it literally is a life or death uh, difference down the road. So if we end up with higher rates of women suffering inappropriately from Alzheimer's because we philosophically decided two generations ago that we're not allowed to ask certain questions and therefore not to do certain research the suffering of those women is going to be on the hands of those bad philosophers.
0: Now there is a very famous Edmund Bell quote the only thing necessary for the triumph of the evil is for good men to do nothing. Now and my question is why do we now why do we agree with that after all we 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 are not iran they can't kill us so why so many professors and doctors and scholars in academia put up with it why don't we stand and say listen we can't stand this anymore we had this ted hill uh, research paper about sex differences this was mm-hmm. a ma- purely mathematical paper and it it was a uh, uh, banished for for from the journal why can't the stanford university and other universities say we are we are against this movement yeah yeah it's
1: one of the distressing things uh, to me as a as a professor inside of academia Um, and i remember when i made the transition from being a student and a graduate student to becoming a professor and teaching at a few different universities, I was quite quickly disillusioned, not necessarily about the intelligence of my colleagues, but certainly about their the character of, uh, of many of them. So that I then from the inside started to see how, uh, how many of them were actually committed to some sort of liberal education and teaching their students and how many of them were interested in just indoctrinating students in, uh, in, in their views, which I think is a total Betrayal of your moral responsibility as a professor, but what you're getting to is the the other one that was disillusioning to me was uh, how many well I guess to put it bluntly how many cowards there are right within the the professoriate, uh, even uh, among tenured professors. You think the whole idea of tenure as an institution is to protect people from the administration, protect them from bad politics, so that they can fearlessly go out and, and seek the truth uh, as, they, as they see fit. And so many of them want to uh, fly under the radar, don't want to uh, ruffle feathers. You know, their, their colleagues down the hall might uh, say something mean to them in a faculty meeting, you know, that the dean or the provost might not give them their $2,000 raise this year. Uh, and on the, just on the basis of those very small things, they are willing to be silent. And in many cases, give tacit support to uh, suppressions of ideas that really should be should be out there. So I don't uh, I don't know what the what the explanation for that is. I've got some psychological hypotheses, but I would just put these out as as hypotheses. Uh, you know, one just is that uh, you know, there's a social psychology of conformity that. Uh, it seems to be pretty well documented that people do want to go along with what seem to be the prevailing groups and their social views. And it's very hard for people to train themselves to have the virtues of intellectual independence and to be able publicly to stand up for, for what they, what they believe. Uh, I think a, yeah, a certain amount of it is, uh, and I understand when people are junior professors, they don't have tenure. They uh, they're, they're often more, 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 uh, more reticent to express their views, but I do think also that uh, even senior professors they do have financial motivations and, you know, and, and in the academic world there's all kinds of very weird attitudes towards money. I think one of the the uh, the issues is that most people who are professors haven't uh, so-called worked a day in their lives. You know, they've not necessarily had a real job. They haven't started a business. They've never been you know part of a corporation so they uh they don't understand money they don't know where it comes from and they're on a salary and it's you know it's kind of a nice middle income salary right and so forth but uh they have weird attitudes toward money and so you know if they don't think they're going to get that $5000 raise uh, this coming year uh that scares them right and then they uh they want to suck up to whoever they think to be the powers that be, the senior person in their department, the department chair, or the provost, or the dean who's going to make the decisions. And I know a certain amount of that also also goes on. But I do want to say, I think probably the most important reason is going to be from my from my field. And that is that uh, you know, whoever captures the moral high ground in any debate, uh, that people will, even if they have some qualms about what the issues are, if they think a certain position is the moral high ground, they will bend over backwards and give lots and lots of benefits of the doubt to anybody who is articulating that position. So if you take an issue like race, uh, you know, it, it, in a way that's a very easy, it's not, it's not difficult to be not a racist, right? Um, but not being a racist is uh, part of the moral high ground. Now, in my view, that's uh, kind of, it's a It's an important but low-grade moral achievement not to be a racist. But in our culture and in our society, it has been, for all sorts of reasons, elevated to being a top issue. And so it has captured the moral high ground. And there's a certain set of issues and positions, rather, on racism that have captured the moral high ground. And people who might have some doubts about that are nonetheless not going to voice strong op- opinion or opposition to it just because then that sounds to them even to themselves that they're attacking the position that has the moral high ground and they just don't want
0: to do ben shapiro uh, steven can you hear me i think we okay there is a book uh, by ben shapiro called bullies and this book basically says that when the left argues with you he doesn't attack your ideas he attack it. It attacks your personality. And this is something of the PC movement. Now, I would like your opinion about what what is the connection between the PC and the new left or the liberal left in the U.S. right now? Do you consider the left or should I put it differently? Can I be a leaning left person without the PC? Right.
1: Right. Well, yes, these tactics that uh, I haven't read Ben Shapiro's book, but the uh, the 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 tactic of ad hominem, right, always attacking the person's argument, right, rather than their 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 positions. Uh, That's an old tactic, and it doesn't have to come from the left. Pretty much every part of the political spectrum, with the exception of people who are robust liberals, uh, will use this tactic. So, you know, history is filled with uh, people, right? Just a second. Yes, please. OK, so, yes, ad hominem or attacking the person rather than the argument. That's an old tactic. And except for people who are strongly liberal, you will find people all over the political spectrum right, using that argument. So you know, in arguments about traditional religion and people then who will package traditional religion, say, with a far right or strongly conservative position. You know, their argument will be if you're arguing against their religion or an argument against the existence of God, well, they will just you know say that shows that you are in a rebellion. Uh, you're you're a bad person. So that's an old, well-worn trail, and typically it's a you know confession of kind of intellectual disinterest in engaging the arguments. Uh, and so it is true that in our generation which is a much more secular culture and a secular intellectual culture, it's the people on the left who are more likely to be engaging in that, in that argument. Now, partly that's because you know many human beings don't want to do the hard intellectual work of uh, having to listen to the other side's arguments and respond and so on, that's, that's, that's difficult. But partly also that parts of the left have been captured by postmodernism and postmodernism tells them as a matter of principle, argument, logic, counter argument, uh, neutral, free speech and civility, that whole package of beliefs is crap. We don't believe in any of that. Everything just is a power struggle for dominance. Anything that you can do to shut down positions that you disagree with, including all of the logical fallacies, including ad hominem, if it works rhetorically, go for it and and, uh, and, and do so. So, now, so let me time, give you the
0: know, uh, one uh, more uh, thing uh, I do want to say
1: as it is possible to be a strongly religious person and believe that it should be about reason and argumentation. Uh, It is possible to be a person on the left and believe that there are universal principles that are true about equity and fairness and so forth, and to have no truck at all with postmodernism crap. And so you're willing then to say, I think my left liberalism or wherever I am, or even my socialism is true, that we have the evidence and the argument on our side, and we're not going to do any of those tactics? We're going to make the arguments and engage the debates with people who disagree with us.
0: Okay, so I, I want to give you the counter ar- argument because you are not a postmodernist, and the counter argument uh, is in uh, Jonathan Haidt. Yes, he, he is a liberal, and he has a an, a, a, a YouTube lecture. Race, gender, denying liberals should not go into social sciences because if you go into social sciences and if you learn Uh, Seriously, intelligence, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, you come to to the inevitable conclusion that there are some inherent differences between uh, races, between men and women, etc. And at the end of of his lecture, at the conclusion, he he says, all groups value the truth, both left and right. All groups hold things sacred. The, the sacred thing, but yep. when the truth and the sacredness conflict, which they in, inevitably do, all groups throw truth under the bus and stick with their scared values. So, okay. if you don't mind, leave that slide up while I while I respond to that.
1: Let me say I have great respect for uh, Jonathan Haidt. Right, as a, if you don't mind, could you leave that slide up? Uh,
0: okay, so uh, uh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Just a second. Oh, yes. uh,
1: I give him great credit for, uh, for, for being willing to engage across political, devout, uh, political divides and so forth and uh, for his founding role with the Heterodox Academy, which I joined some years ago at its, uh, at its foundation. Uh, but I do think that uh, all of these propositions on this slide are false. There is something to evolutionary biology, obviously, and to evolutionary psychology, but it is vastly oversold by uh, certain parts of the intellectual spectrum. It's a matter, in my judgment, of just telling a lot of just so stories uh, after after the fact. Now, a few things that I would point on here is, uh, one thing is he's not talking about individuals, he's talking about groups. And that is not the level at which uh, things, uh, things operate. Right? We, we do join groups, but we, even in, in a group, we are individuals and we can retain our individuality. So at most what we have is a social psychological claim here or some sort of sociological claim that's going on here. I do not think it's true that all individuals value the truth. There are lots of people right? They, the, who, who uh, do not value the truth. They are subjectivists. They know in their heart of hearts that they are believing in various things. They don't know if they're true. They have their all kinds of conflicts, uh, uh, but they want to believe certain things to be true. Uh, and they're gonna uh, functionally act as if they are true, but they don't necessarily believe that they are, they are true. You can see all of this going on in relationships. I know uh, people who uh, work with women who are in abusive relationships, and the women will say, I know this guy beats me. I know he is a bad guy. But they go through all sorts of psychological mechanisms to suppress that, and talk themselves into going back to the guy again. So the psychology is a whole lot more complicated. Not all individuals believe in the truth, right? Okay. (laughs) We will go out of our way to avoid uncomfortable truths as individuals. So all groups hold things sacred. Uh, I would like to believe that's true, but I don't think all individuals hold things sacred. There are lots of people who uh, give up on believing that life is particularly meaningful, or sacred right or important love is just a myth there is no decency right people are cynics about themselves i know that i'm no better than anybody else i know i should get up off the sofa and start that business right or call that girl and ask her for a date but uh you know is love sacred to that person is having a successful career sacred to that person no that person has kind of given up on life and is going to be you know, what we call a, a couch potato, right? Uh, but,
0: maybe, but maybe the concept that nothing is sacred is sacred. Yeah. Maybe it's the well, concept then, that everything, you know, because the relatives say well, that... No, I think at that yeah. point,
1: you're just playing with words, right? Sorry to, to push back, right? Sacred means something you put up on a pedestal. There's a strong difference between the good and the bad, the high and the low. And there are people who want to say, no, everything is low. Everything is crap. And that is their, their operative belief. There is no sacredness. Now they might believe that strongly, but believing that strongly is not. No, the same it's thing. not sacred. Um, same I same meant thing.
0: something that you are willing to fight for.
1: Yeah, and willing. I was thinking those people, they're not even going to be willing to fight for it. You know, they're not going to get up and write a book about cynicism and pessimism and nihilism, right? Instead, they're just going to retire from life and uh, and, and let things. The sail away, so I don't think that second one is true. The third one. I think also is true when truth and sacredness conflict which they inevitably drew uh, I don't think they are inevitably going to conflict with each other often They will I think if you get things right your your philosophical framework right including your moral framework and your highest values There doesn't have to be a conflict there And it's also not true that all individuals or groups will throw through throw truth under the butt there's lots and lots of people who say These are my political values. These are my moral values. These are my relationship values. I am totally in love with this woman or this person or my religious values. I can't remember if I already said that one or not. But I uh, uh, see that these cannot possibly be true. And people change their minds on religion. I was gung-ho speaking hypothetically about this particular religion when I was 18 years old. I went and I studied philosophy and religion, and I started to have doubts. I questioned my faith. I had this enormous crisis and conflict going on in myself between what I, my mind was telling me is true and what I desperately thought was sacred and beautiful and noble about the world. What happens in that case? Of course, lots of people will abandon the truth for. Maintaining their belief in sacredness, but lots of people do also go the other way They change their minds about what they take to be sacred because they think that they have to go with the truth Adopt their beliefs political issues They can be desperately in love with someone and change their minds about that right and so forth so there are people who are committed to the truth and they will prevail with the truth even if it conflicts with sacredness so uh, lots of interesting issues here, but
0: I think I disagree with all of those okay. propositions. Okay, so we we don't have a lot of time, and this is so much fascinating in mm. your uh, in your Hebrew version or your the Hebrew translation of explaining postmodernism. As as I said before, the name is not explaining but unveil postmodernism, and I think it captures it captures the the essence of the book even better because you are a, an anti. Postmodern in, 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 in any aspect. And, and the book cover, you see John Lennon, and underneath the mask, there is Joseph Stalin. So mm. this is a book cover of the Hebrew version. Now, my question is uh, what can we extract from modernism? Because uh, what can we extract for postmodernism? Modernism was good, was like the pinnacle of Western society but what can we extract any good values or attribute from postmodernism should we speak about feminism generation uh, the fourth wave of feminism which is the post third wave of feminism or should we go back to the modern uh, era okay yeah, very interesting
1: question. Right? What I would what I would say is it's not a matter of going back to the modern era. We still still are in the modern era. We still are in the Enlightenment, in the uh, Enlightenment culture. We, the fact sides of the world having a yes. Okay. Yes. So we are still in a flourishing Enlightenment culture, right? By which we mean. We we prize individuals, the pursuit of happiness, right? The freedom of people to choose their own careers. The idea that women should have equal freedoms uh, with men. That we are appalled by slavery. And we think that slavery is a moral abomination. And we've largely succeeded in eliminating slavery from most of the world and driven it underground. We believe that science is making the world a better place and all of the technology and so forth. And that very modern idea that we can make progress on pretty much all of these problems. That I think are still the, the dominant beliefs and the dominant institutions of not just Western civilizations, but increasingly global culture. What we do have though, is I think a minority intellectual tradition that is very cynical and jaded And uh, I think it's captured uh, by postmodern right labels and it is attacking all of those beliefs and it is uh, culturally ensconced in some very important aspects of culture. Uh, But I don't want to say that we live in a postmodern culture. I say what we have is a debate now intellectually and culturally between modernism and the Enlightenment and some postmoderns. And I don't also want to uh, count out the pre-moderns. There are... Lots of uh, pre-moderns right, who have a more traditional, conservative, religious worldview who are, uh, who are out there and retooling themselves. So it's, it's not just a two-way debate, it's a three-way debate as well. So the question then would be, you know, is there anything good to salvage from post-modernism? I would say at a philosophical level, no. Right? If you define your terms carefully, I think post-modernism is false and destructive all the way down. I think in many cases, the way postmodernism works is by capturing some things that modernism has built into it, right? So the idea that we need to... Uh, to, to tolerance to, be...
0: to different kinds of opinions. Yeah, so
1: a certain kinds of tolerance. And, you know, there's a, a way that modernists for centuries of now have been trying to capture tolerance as an social value, but having differences about it. But what the postmoderns do is they kind of capture that important moral principle and then corrupt it or pervert it in a certain direction, right? Or the idea that we should be initially skeptical about big claims that are put to us and not just easily accept on faith or accept on authority. That's an important modernist principle. But if you take skepticism and anti-faith and you uh, you you uh, uh, you kind of buy into the most extreme versions of it, then you will get postmodernism coming out of it. So, I would you know, happily say that the Enlightenment project has been a resounding success, intellectually and culturally. But it was not perfect, uh, and in many cases, many of the big issues that, uh, that that we are engaged with in epistemology and the understanding of human nature moral values, even metaphysics, uh, you know, the Enlightenment did not get those perfectly. They are very hard problems and particularly the epistemological issues and the cognitive issues. Those are extraordinarily difficult and as you know, we're still in the infancy with respect to human psychology and neuroscience, right, and so forth. So we have a lot of work ahead to do, as I always say, not to go back to the Enlightenment Project, but rather to extend the Enlightenment Project. What I see the postmoderns as doing is saying the postmodern, or sorry, the modern project was tried, tried. We think it's been a failure. We think it's crap. Uh, we don't like the cultural institutions, so we're just going to try to burn the whole house down.
0: And this is a resentment, the Nietzsche's resentment that you speak about. Yes. Well, I think that's one of the major strands. So the uh, the Hebrew,
1: I do like unveiling right postmodernism. I think postmodernism in general there's a consistent set of philosophical principles. But there are a number of subversions that are distinctive you know, the same way you might say you know there's Western religion, but there's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The same thing I think is true of postmodernism there's generic postmodernism, but there are more politicized versions of postmodernism. there are more cultural versions, there are more cognitive versions as well, and uh, some of them uh, are especially the more political are motivated by Uh, as I think the cover captures very well, a reworking of a certain kind of authoritarian left wing politics that can't uh, stand its ground on modernist, uh, modernist principles anymore. It's not the only one, but I do think that's an important one. And certainly in terms of cultural activism right now in our generation, that is the most dangerous one we need to understand.
0: So, as a philosophy, we can gain nothing from postmodernism, from postmodernism, because if A equals B and B equals C, so A equals C. Period. But as a culture, we can gain like sensitivity like, and maybe being more patient to different kinds of view. But yeah. but 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 again, as a philosophy, and you are a professor of philosophy, every every uh, true. Aspect of postmodernism can be found in the Enlightenment, in modernism philosophy. Yes, in modern philosophy. I think
1: that's yeah, absolutely true. Okay. Now, at the same time, yeah, I do want to say that postmodernism is a long-standing tradition within philosophy, and then right more broadly within Western culture. Right, we've every generation has people who are skeptical, who are subjectivist, who are cynical, who are just interested in power. Uh, And I think it's important that every generation we grapple with those issues. And I think as a modernist enlightenment educator, I don't want to say let's just not pay attention to postmodernism. We have to take its arguments seriously uh, in order to strengthen our our own position. So postmodernism should have a seat at the table. But at the same time, it's important that we not only understand it, but we have
0: to develop better arguments and defeat it. And this is why we have the book, both in English and Hebrew. Huh? You see? it's a. <laughs> now, let's say that you convinced me totally. And this show is targeted to very intelligent people in Israel. What should or what can we do in order to increase free speech, in order to reduce the PC movement in our lives? What can we do? Well, I, I think the important things partly are
1: cognitive, right? Be aware of the, the issues. Uh, and sometimes those issues are philosophical, sometimes they're political, sometimes they're social, psychological, and so on. So we all have our areas of expertise and we want to be first rate, but we are a part of a broader community and all of these things are going on. So we need, we need to have that broader education as well. So you know, being a first rate scientist should be compatible with and nested within being a citizen, being a humanist, being a philosophically minded person in in general. So be aware of the the issues. Uh, Then I would say, yeah, uh, uh, be a person of some courage and be willing to stand up for for your viewpoints. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be an expert on these issues, but if you are a, a person and you think that something is inappropriate, Uh, that is a dangerous uh, stifling of argumentation, point that out saying, look, we need to not do ad hominems here. We need not to politicize this. We need to look at the issues and I might disagree with this position, but I'm going to let this position be, be articulated and put your own voice out there and be a reasonable person. I think we will all have uh, influence in our social circles, wherever we're coming from, in part based on our, our moral character. Obviously, we're all smart people and we know our, our areas. but people also pay attention to who seems genuinely interested in the truth, who is willing to listen to an argument, who can uh, respond intelligently to an argument, who can identify what's actually at stake so that things aren't just going on at a subterranean level. So be a, a, a role model. For uh, truth seeking good character, social civility, and uh, uh, then you will have more influence in, you, in your in your field and I think that's uh, that 's the way that we have to do it all of us
0: and don 't confuse free speech for being rude you can 't have sp- free speech, but you must be polite being uh, being able to do or to say whatever you want to say. Is not however you want to say it, you need to address it. Like you said at the beginning of our conversation, you might say things that might insult or hurt or make like makes some people angry. And you must be willing to accept this challenge because you are standing for your truth or your opinions.
1: Yes? Absolutely right. And especially in universities and colleges or any sort of research institutions, uh that has to be the the operative principle i mean if i'm going to be a philosopher and i'm going to publish something i have to know that there are going to be lots of smart people who will tell me that i am an idiot now that's rude it's going to go with the with the territory and they're going to attack my arguments say in some cases things that maybe i haven't think about. and i have to go into it being willing to say criticize 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 hurt my Feelings and say those things, and I shouldn't be an intellectual or a first place.
0: Well, now I have like <laughs> last. This is a funny question, but I must uh, ask you: Which group do you consider to be the top of the discrimination hi- hierarchy? This will be this a single black uh, black mother lesbian woman or a Palestinian? So, and who decides who is on the top of the discrimination? Hierarchy.
1: yeah i uh i don't think that's a legitimate question i, I, don't, <laughs> I don't remember, right question i think that's totally uh an inappropriate way to to frame things obviously there are victims in the world there are people who uh who suffer uh, uh, vict- uh victim status from all sorts of, of degrees uh, uh to outright extermination attempts right all the way down to just uh, you know, sideways glances because I don't like your religion or your, your race or, or treat you and so forth. So we should be aware of these things and we should uh, push back against them. But I think the appropriate way to focus on all of these things is to say, look, you're an individual. You have your own mind. You have your own body. You can control your own mind and you can figure out the way the world works. And if you are in a free society or even a semi-free society, you've got lots of opportunities to make your life successful by your own lights. And there are plenty of other people out there who are smart and decent, willing to work with you. Emphasize the positive. At the same time, don't let the people who are idiots, who have psychological problems or who have bought into... Uh, corrupt psychological and philosophical frameworks get too far inside your head. Don't let them dominate your thinking. If they have problems with racism or they don't like the fact of your religion, that is fundamentally their problem. Stand your ground, think your own mind, and uh, and, 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 and rely on your own efforts to make your way in the world. You can do it victimology and playing the victim ranks is a, is a way to sabotage yourself psychologically, to demoralize yourself and just to set yourself up for failure.
0: Which leads, I think, to the heritage of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, that the individual is the most important thing and we don't need and we shouldn't judge anyone by his identity politics. Right? If yeah. you look at the individual before you and say, is he or she smart or talented enough for this specific job? And don't try to encapsulate anyone by his gender or race or et cetera, et cetera. Right. This you know, so the way Martin
1: Luther King Jr. put it, right? It's the content of your character. Now, he's emphasizing your moral character. And that's exactly the right point. Uh, uh, but of course, also, it's the content of your intelligence in some social circles, it's the content of your productivity in business circles. So you judge individuals by their beliefs, by their intelligence, by their character, by their ability to, uh, to get the job done. There's a wonderful line from uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, an early 20th century uh, uh, writer who was you know, well aware but there are lots of racists, right, and people who are going to judge her, you know, partly because she was a woman, but partly on the basis of her, of her skin color. And she just had a delightful response to that. She says, you know, I just can't understand why anybody wouldn't want to be and to respect me. So basically what she's saying is she's got self-esteem. She knows that she's a wonderful person. Great ideas, lots of talent and imagination, good sense of humor and so forth. That's the thing that you should be striving for, knowing for yourself that you are special, you are weak, you are talented, you can make a go of it. If you've got that, your life at large almost guaranteed be a success to all the right kind of people. Again, don't let the idiots wear you down.
0: Professor Hicks, I prepared so many questions uh, regarding uh, PC and regarding mm. the ep- ep- epistemology of Nietzsche and postmodernism, but this was, wow, too much. I need to digest this conversation. First, thank you so much for your time and uh, for your patience, and thank you so much for writing this book, because I think this book is truly a, a weapon against a uh, postmodernism f- phenomena that we see now in colleges in campuses and uh, even in streets so many 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 thanks for your very important work that you did and i must tell you that in israel this work uh, has influenced many 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 people so again it's a pleasure to know
1: so let me uh, thank you for inviting me on your show a great great conversation yeah, let me say uh, yeah in a year or so uh, sometime in 2021 maybe we can uh, have another conversation as you say there's lots yes. of other issues uh, I, let me also say that uh, when the w- we were planning to to publish the translation i did almost nothing right with respect to it but there were some plans to bring me to israel to give some lectures mm-hmm. and i know there are some Intellectuals with whom I've had email correspondence in Israel, I would very much like to meet. So let's stay in touch and uh, perhaps also we can meet in person wow. next year. This will the be couple. my
0: privilege. And please, for your next version of uh, your book, Unveiling Postmodernism, I think it's even better than Explaining Postmodernism.
1: I will give some thought and talk with my publishing
0: people. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Stephen X. Bye bye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. עשנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהעורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת איתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט יראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים את דברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, ומאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.